Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. You look so angry to be back in this chair. <laughs> you just look pissed off. It's just my default setting. It's like the uh, the Red Wings meme that Sarah puts out once in a while. It's like my, uh, I can't remember what it is, like my mood is like pissed off and cold. The, is it the Zetterberg scale one, that one? Uh, it might, yes, but she's also applied it to the Chris Osgood sitting in the booth and he just looks like bundled up and angry with a yep. headset on calling the game. Yep, I know the one. That's your vibe. Perfect, I'm nailing it then. <laughs> So welcome back. Uh, Evan and I had a great time without you. It was the best, really. I have, that was one of the most notable episodes of the season in terms of the amount of people who texted me to say, man, Evan crushed it last episode. The people I love it. I actually didn't look at the YouTube comments. That's good. It's for the best. Y- you have to like balance the highs and lows. I'll have to because- do that afterwards now. Because if you look at the highs, you'll be tempted to look when it could be the lows. <laughs> yeah. You just got you just got to one hundred percent ignore it. That's it. It's a honeypot. That's how they get you. <laughs> they uh, pull you in with the good stuff, and uh, that's when they snare you. All right, Brad, welcome back, Evan. I'm uh, sorry that the addition by subtraction from last episode no longer applies. Yep, folks. It's okay. Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. We are here to talk to you about the Detroit Red Wings, for better or for worse, the NHL, international hockey, the offside rule, which is uh, a special edition that I saved just to make Brad really happy, and everything else to do uh, in the world of hockey. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. Uh, Other than just generally needling Brad this episode, what we're going to be talking about is the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, their most recent game against the Anaheim Ducks, which was 40 seconds away from being a way happier conversation, uh, as well as some notable things like Bertuzzi returning, Jonathan, or Jonathan Berggren, Jonathan Berggren, we have to get better at that, uh, scoring his first career NHL goal. We'll talk about what exactly went wrong for Detroit, what they have ahead, uh, and some important stats compared to 2021-2022, which are way more similar than I think people are going to feel happy about. Uh, we'll talk about international hockey, uh, what the World Cup, the latest news on the World Cup of hockey is, uh, what it means for best on best in the future. We'll talk about the Hall of Fame, the offside dispute with the Zegras goal, news from around the league, and whatever else comes up. Uh, but before we do all that, we of course want to call your attention to Hot Stove Stories featuring Mick and Ken. That's an event on Thursday, December 1st at Motor City Casino Hotel in Detroit. It is a morning breakfast event, so registration starts at 7.30. The event runs from 8 until 10, approximately, and it is going to be a fantastic time where it's going to feature special guests and NHL legends Chris Osgood and Chris Draper, as well as refereeing legend Daniel Halloran and one of the most uh, notable referees in all sports right now, Wes McCauley. Uh, I'll be there to help moderate, but those guys are really, really going to bring the heat in terms of stories. Uh, banter. There's going to be a Q&A with the crowd. I'm sure Mickey's going to have his go at the refs, which is always a good time. And it all benefits the Jamie Daniels Foundation. So go to jamiedanielsfoundation.org to get your ticket. You get breakfast included. Uh, you get to see the event. You have an opportunity to join in the Q&A. And then, uh, of course, there's going to be a live auction as well with some really, really great hockey memorabilia. And a silent auction is up for uh, is going to be going up for that uh, in advance too with uh, even more stuff to bid on. So I know we, we've been talking to Ken and the stuff that he's pulled together for this has been amazing. Uh, 
We're really excited for it. I hope to see as many of you there as possible. If we can fill that room, that'd be incredible. And of course, it uh, it all benefits the Jamie Daniels Foundation and their fight against substance use disorder. The Anaheim Ducks were a beatable team. The Anaheim Ducks were a beatable team for the Red Wings on paper, and the Anaheim Ducks were a beatable team with about a minute to go in last night's game, a late night game that started actually 10 p.m. Eastern, so it wasn't as bad as the 10.30 game. And it was just another exercise that night in you have to look at the season as a whole on balance. These things are going to happen. But you were 40 seconds away, was it? And the Red Wings couldn't close it. A uh, 3-2 overtime loss to the Anaheim Ducks is how it ended up when they were a mere minute away from, from beating them and their losing streak continues. They are currently at 1, 2, 3, 4 games with losses with two points in there uh, one in the shootout uh, against Montreal and one in overtime against Anaheim not a pretty game and a rough ending in what should have been a good night with Bertuzzi coming back Berggren scoring his first goal what do we make of it old habits die hard the running joke for how many years has been the Red Wings biggest enemy is a third period lead I think I read a stat um, as well that Anaheim of their X amount of wins, like 60 or 70% of them have come while trailing entering the third period. That's great. So that's a bad omen. <laughs> they were made in a lab to defeat the Detroit Red Wings. More or less, yes. Well, sometimes that means you're a very re- resilient team. Sometimes that means you're just really bad because you're losing a lot. Yeah. I-, I feel like with Anaheim, it's the latter. Well, they beat them that night. So the the Red Wings ended up falling. The losing streak extends. And it was an altogether, like I don't want to, sit here and pretend that it was a perfect game from the Red Wings where they were leading when they should have been against Anaheim. Not like Anaheim did much to counter that, but why don't we start from the beginning? Uh, Obviously, this game had a lot of excitement around it, as much as there could be when the team's on a losing streak and they're playing on the West Coast and starting the game's really late. But uh, not only was Jake Wallman coming back, but it was Tyler Bertuzzi's first game back. So accounting for rust because Bertuzzi has missed a good, good chunk of time, um, that's the injection of offense that one injection of offense that the Red Wings really needed, I think. So there was the buzz there, but altogether, I think especially at five on five, the offense didn't really have a lot to show for. But the big story really was Jonathan Berggren uh, and his power play goal. His first two games, like we talked about last episode, Evan, he looked really good. He got his first NHL point. He In games where the Red Wings didn't look excellent, he was altogether one of their better players, if not one of their best players. And he kicked off the game against Anaheim uh, with his goal uh, on the power play. The puck hit a duck, a duck player in the face. <laughs> in the face! <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I, I mean, I'm happy, I'm, I think he's okay, but I think it's kind of funny that forever... Berggren's highlight reel is going to have that on it and it's going to be a guy like grabbing his face in pain and then him just kicking the puck from his skate to his stick and burying it in a nice little display of skill. It was a nice little display of skill and it's very quick the way he did that. He's very um, very deft with his movements with the puck both from skate to stick and and otherwise but yeah that and a guy doubled over in pain because he took a piece of vulcanized rubber to the teeth. I've just got this visualization in my head of a 60 year old Jonathan Berggren talking to his grandkids about, yeah, guy got domed and I roofed it. Just that's (laughs) the whole story of his first NHL goal. Yeah, pretty much. But it was an impressive goal because that 
you know, most good hockey players can kick the puck to their stick, shoot it, etc. But off of a redirection at the speed he did it is impressive. So, yeah. you know, guy getting domed aside, it's, you know, you, a lot of guys always joke, oh yeah, the my, for my first NHL goal, the other team put the puck in their own net. No, he actually had a very nice skill, nice finish to his first NHL goal. So always, always a little bit better when that's the story you can hold forever. Uh, Mason McTavish ended up getting one on the power play uh, in the first period as well. And that was the, that was the really big, the only flaw really with the penalty kill for Detroit that night. Um, it was tough because Huso actually made a couple of really big saves. There were juicy rebounds again, but I don't know how much of those could be pinned on him with the amount of lateral movement he had to uh, demonstrate to even get to those pucks. And there were hard shots. And, you know, I was a second away from saying, oh man, Huso is saving them this pe- this penalty kill and McTavish ended up bearing it. Second period, Michael Rasmussen scored the exact kind of goal. Everyone wants Michael Rasmussen to score from now until the end of the time, which is use your massive frame fight off, literally shake off defenders like they're Brad trying to fight Evan in the streets and then turn around and fire at home. Like that was perfect. I would love to be able to say that's textbook Michael Rasmussen. And I think we're seeing that more and more uh, as he progresses in his career, but that put Detroit up. And then really other than that, that's where the positives ended for Detroit in terms of offense. Like this is a team, even with Bertuzzi back for the first, his first game back. So, you know, I'm going to give him a big buffer period of rust here. Um, the offense looks stagnant, though. There wasn't a lot to show for. And the analytics back it up because aren't the Red Wings a bottom two or three team in the league by expected goals per 60 at five on five? Yeah, that sounds about right. That's how it feels, at least. I, I mean, think it, it passes the eye test, too, because when the Red Wings are five on five, maybe this is by design. They're just trying to, you know, stifle all offense yeah. by both teams. But th- there's no production obviously there's no production whatsoever and it's you can see that on the ice it's not just an underlying metric like you can see that this team does not produce at five on five Mm -hmm. having no Verona and Bertuzzi for essentially the whole season is obviously a huge factor in the Red Wings lack of offense you know Sundquist has been a pleasant surprise this year so him missing games has hurt but looked good last night yeah but by and large Teams that play the effective, stifling style of defense that the Red Wings do can generally still produce offense because of pure talent. You know, you have guys who can bust the game open by themselves or make a play or, or you know, whatever to get the offense going, to start the cycle, to get something off a turnover. The Red Wings don't have that beyond two guys on offense, at least at five on five. For as good as David Perron's been this year, we know he's a power play specialist. He's not the guy that's going to get a whole lot going at five on five. Not that he's bad at it, but he's not a driver at it. You have Larkin. You have Raymond. Kubelik seems to be exceeding expectations this year. And then everybody else is on the struggle bus. And even them, they're not to the level of, you know, you look at the Rangers where Panarin and Zibanejad can pull something out of the air. The Leafs, the Avs, the the top teams that can, you know, it's like the football analogy, you know, the four-man rush, you don't need to blitz. The Red Wings don't have that. If they are to create offense, they have to blitz. And they don't 
have the ability to do that because they can't sacrifice the other end of the ice right now for other obvious reasons. So it's kind of that overly obvious answer of, yeah, the Red Wings aren't generating offense because they don't have a lot of good offensive players. But that's the reality of the situation. It also doesn't help that there's been so many injuries and it basically forces a line blender. There's no continuous consistency between line mates. Nobody really has any flow with one another. So as we see more guys either A, come off the injury reserve or the lines attempt to stay similar to what they are now, I don't see how the offense, other than single-handed efforts and good single player good games are really going to change anything more on that in a second i just want to wrap up how this game went so in the third period the red wings got in quite a bit of penalty trouble especially in their penalty kill saved them you know they killed a key five on three there was a lot of different moments where anaheim really should have converted and, and tied it before uh what was it 47 seconds or whatever was left in the game um that's that ended up being when they broke through. They had the goalie pulled, and it just Huso could only do so much. In overtime, Larkin, Sider, Raymond, especially those three, controlled the puck for what felt like all of overtime. It was like I'm sure like 90 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. Some good opportunities, not a lot. Gibson's not going to be a goalie that you're going to really beat by fluke, quite honestly. Uh, so they weren't able to convert there, and it took one bad break where I wish it was any other player who had this turnover rather than the guy who in his first came back where the Red Wings really, really, really needed him. We'll just need him to come back on form as at his pace. Uh, but Tyler Bertuzzi had a tragic, tragic giveaway in his own zone. He that was... I hate to say the word brain dead, but it might might have been. It was so casual. A backhand sauce across the net with two guys on your on that side applying pressure. Like that's a tough look. Rust isn't just physical; it's mental. It's not making those stupid mistakes, uh, and, and that has to be what you attribute it to. Three on three overtime is also f- funky hockey. Like, generally, do you pass it back out of the zone or to your own goalie or something like that? No, of course not. Uh, do you? That is a horrendous pass, Ryan. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing it again in front. I know of you. you're it's trying really... to like. I know you're trying to like rationalize it a little bit but no no i'm not trying to i'm saying like in general like yes do you ever pass across your own crease no uh uh, in three on three hockey can you are there situations where you might do it sure that wasn't it though that was just no that's way too casual for at the for the nhl level his his brain just turned off because he's rusty and not that bertuzzi is a stalwart defensively but yeah that was bad and that sucked because it, you know Bertuzzi, the story of Bertuzzi needed to be that night. He came back and he gave this team a massive boost, and instead, it was uh, the final catalyst in the Red Wings' ultimate loss in a game they should have won. Yep. So, losing streak, like I said, at four. The West Coast road trip's not over. Thursday they have San Jose, ten thirty Eastern on the road, and then before they're back home uh, as well, they have uh, Columbus on the road, seven Eastern. Uh, on Saturday. So two more games for the Red Wings to manage on the road. And, you know, their schedule is not exactly getting easy. And they're getting into, they're out, they're getting out of the phase, I think, of the early season sweetheart schedule, as we've called it. We'll talk in a little bit. I'm really comfortable. I'm okay with the Red Wings struggling 
in general. Like I'm not going to needle this team on a micro level game after game after game and say the sky is falling. But I do think they need to come away from this road trip with something to show for it. This is about the time last year that it all went south and the schedules do line up. And I remember very early in the season, we talked about um, the game against Chicago that they blew when obviously Chicago is expected to be a lottery team and they lost in overtime and, you know, whatever. And I distinctly remember us talking about, yeah, it's going to happen. That's fine. That's hockey. But if you want to be a playoff team, it can't happen multiple times, especially against bad teams. Anaheim's one of the worst teams in the league this year. I don't even know if they have a regulation win yet. No. They are a bad hockey team. So now you've got a bad loss against Chicago. Uh, we'll call it a bad loss against Anaheim. You know, there's been a couple other questionable long ones along the way. It can't become a habit. It just can't if you expect to be a playoff team, even to be playing meaningful games in March. Well, let's talk about the stat and let's talk about the um, the overarching conversation that we kind of kicked off, kicked off here. Uh, this one's from Prashant Iyer, who we heard from last episode. Through 16 games, the Wings have had the same number of points as they did last year at this juncture. The concerning part, and this is according to Prashant, the concerning part is that last year's team had much better results at 5-on-5, five five, whereas this year's team is far more reliant on special teams. And the analytics back that up, but like you said, Evan, so does the eye test. Like, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Things seem stagnant, things seem stale, uncreative, and, and unproductive at 5-on-5 five five generally. And not that the power play is a world beater. There's been times, too, when the power plays not been good well ineffective lacking production mm-hmm. like uh, the boston game is what i think of when they had they went i think over seven yeah so yeah the power play has been been better but i think there's still a lot of room for improvement there as well oh only 19.7 percent. so it's not like they're a good team on the power play by any means i remember the power play last year <laughs> horrendous <laughs> terrible for the last few years. I remember the point in the one season where the Red Wings uh, goals per 60 was higher at 5-on-5 five five than 5-on-4. Five yeah. <laughs> yep. Then the whole Wings money on the board wasn't the Genesis, the bad power play? That's right, yeah. 0 <laughs> for 41 they yeah. went. Raised quite a bit of money. So we can't be that upset the Red Wings, bad power plays. The Red Wings are raising money to fight substance use disorder. That's what they're doing. It, I. That's the narrative we should run with. So something you talked about just uh, a bit ago, Brad, was... You know, the Red Wings that are producing offensively and then everyone else, you call them a struggle bus, which I think is a scientific term. Where, where is the solution here? Sorry, where's the answer, I should say? Because Cop so far, has he been a good 2C? No. Cop also missed all of the important part of the offseason where you not only recuperate, rebuild the muscle that you lost, rest, recover, and then uh, get conditioned for the season. He had core surgery. So he wasn't able to do a lot of that. So he is playing catch-up. And we've seen that that catch-up for players takes much longer than people are really comfortable with admitting. But it, it does take some time, and it's hard through the throes of an NHL season to find that break to catch up. So has Cop impressed me? No. I think he's been invisible for a lot of this this time. And especially offensively, he's not really added much, if anything, to the team most games. Um but I'm not exactly throwing in the towel and saying, oh, that cop signing was an absolute mistake and you know, this is Weiss 2.0. But I think it is an area of concern uh, and it's one where it, I think it can and should turn around. 
but it's it's now has me i'm what like people are watching it and saying where's the 2c cop that was signed um and then like you said missing bertuzzi missing verona that hurts in a terrible way and it's like we've talked about for for episodes and episodes and episodes this is a new coach new system that everyone can see visually displayed on the ice Guys are getting used to playing with new line mates. There's no better demonstration of that right now than Calder winner Mo Sider learning how to play with Ben Sherratt. Uh, there's a lot happening on this team, and I think the early success was more probably just a, a run good than an actual demonstration of the the talent that was added. I think what we're seeing now is this is the that adjustment period that we talked about. Is it guaranteed to turn around? No. I, I mean, we could be looking back and say, yeah, that, those signings were a mistake and this team's in a bad place. But I think this is really just the uh, kind of the the sticky part of it. Yeah, it's hard to say because early in the season, every team's a little rusty. You know, the Red Wings aren't unique in the fact that they had guys who missed training camp or have had early season injuries. I mean, I'm pretty sure Columbus is down to their ECHL roster at this point, and they've obviously handled it far worse than Detroit has. Yeah, seven more players got injured since the start of this recording. That might be low. (laughs) Um, But the catch-22 here is, yeah, that's all well and good, and you had an easy schedule, and but the schedule's getting harder. So even if they start getting healthy, this fully healthy Red Wings team, when they're clicking, I expect them to beat Anaheim. I expect them to beat Buffalo and Chicago, etc. A fully healthy and clicking Red Wings team, I don't expect to beat Tampa Bay, Toronto, Boston, Florida. And you got a lot of those teams coming down the pipeline yet. So if the Red Wings are struggling at all with no momentum going into this part of the schedule, it's not going to go well. And... You know, if they can get it together, maybe is it possible they get lucky and they catch some of these teams on an off night or a bunch of backup goalies? Yeah, absolutely. Hockey is very random. The New Jersey Devils are on a 10-game winning streak right now. Like, anything can happen. Hey, hey, hey. They're doing that because I was smart and right before the season. And that's what I maintain. Yes, despite getting below average goaltending. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) either way, you know, I'm not going to say it's too late for the Red Wings. It's it's obviously not. But what I am going to say is they blew a huge opportunity to this point in the season. They had such an easy schedule and they, despite having an okay record right now for the team the Red, we expected the Red Wings to be, they left a lot of points on the board. You know, you can't blow a last minute lead to Anaheim. You can't blow any lead to Chicago. You can't get absolutely wiped by the Buffalo Sabres. So, you know, I'll just sum it up by saying a huge opportunity was lost. San Jose, Columbus, Nashville, Arizona, Toronto, Buffalo. That's the rest of their November schedule. Yeah. That's and and still, then what happens? That's still pretty soft. Like that's, that's schedule, not bad at all. That's a schedule where even uh, as a team that's adjusting, and even as a team that is looking to kind of feel things out and focusing more on enabling offensive creativity from their core, uh, maximizing Mo Sider, maximizing Lucas Raymond, getting Philip Peronic back to form. And Philip Peronic actually had a good game last night. I want to call that out. He's been better this year. He has been. One goal, 10 assists, I believe. So it's not been productive, but kind of unremarkable. He's he's had a, a few really good games now where I think I've his decision-making has been better, and he's also put the puck in the puck on the net rather than into the stratosphere. So that that's November. 
And then, like you said, Brad, let's take a look at December. <laughs> Vegas, Columbus, Tampa, Florida, Dallas, Carolina. That is a that is murderer's row. Like that is a gauntlet of and tough teams. Not to mention, I think four of those five games or six games you just mentioned are all on the road. Yep. Four of them in a row. Yep. Minnesota, Ottawa, Washington. So that's not exactly tough. And then uh, Tampa, Ottawa, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Ottawa. Like they they got a mixed bag here, but they have a run there where if they're coming into that Vegas game on a bad losing streak or or without a lot going for them, it's going to be real hard to to pick up a ton of points against Vegas and then Columbus, Tampa, Florida, Dallas all on the road. Yeah, this next, what is it, five-game stretch in November? Like, they have to, have to pull seven points out of that minimum, which is a very high percentage. But like you said, this is the last soft part of their schedule. And if they do not capitalize now, it'll be really hard to play catch-up, let alone tread water. And just to clarify, you're saying they have to if they have any ambition of playing meaningful games into February, March. February, I would hope they can overcome this. But yeah, March, April, if they go, let's say, points percentage-wise 500 over this next one, and then they're walking into that schedule, this season could go off the rails very quickly. Now, I'm not saying it will. Again, those next five games, yeah, they should get seven points. That's not exactly, you know, a bold thing to say. The Red Wings, talent-wise, are better than all but one of those teams. So if you have an off night and you lose an overtime game to Nashville and you get wiped by Toronto, but you win the rest of those games, you're okay. And I would expect the Red Wings win the rest of those games. So it's not like, you know, you're going into a seven game series with Tampa and it's like, oh yeah, you have to win the series. You have to, you have no choice. No, it's here's your last true opportunity to build that cushion so that when you get a run of six games, like they start with this December with, you know, you're not going into that going, oh, if we don't get over 500 in this stretch, we're done. Which if they don't hear, they will have to then. It's It's been uh, difficult throughout the start of the season. And I think what happened was that, I'm going to say honeypot again, I don't even know if that's the right reference, but they basically that sweet schedule that the Red Wings had in that little run good where they had excellent goaltending and, uh, you know, the right players were producing offensively, whatever. They got that run of points. You let yourself believe a little bit like, oh, maybe that adjustment period that we talked about wasn't going to be as pronounced or as long as, as uh, you know, we projected at the start of the season. And, and again, I'm just going to go back to it. I think it is. And I think that's what we're seeing now. So you're saying, Brad, they need to come out with like seven out of the next 10 points. And I agree. If they do want to be playing meaningful games in February, March, April, yes, they do. I don't think they will. It's not my projection that they will. A lot has to change fundamentally. And what I'm seeing right now is a team going through those growing pains. Like Cider is still working on finding his game from last season in every way. He's there's it comes and goes, and there I think he's better now than he was at the start of the season. I, I still think he has a big adjustment to playing Ben Sherratt's all over the ice kind of play, as Prashanth referenced last episode. They still they have to see how Bertuzzi shakes off the rust. They're still without Verona for indeterminate amount of time. Uh, Berggren's a nice addition, and Raymond has really turned it on, and Larkin is playing lights out. Larkin's playing amazing hockey right now. But other than that, like the defense is a black hole. They need Villahusa to bail them out every game, essentially at this point, and uh, they only have so many soft teams to play. 
I don't know if I call, I, I'd say they're in their adjustment phase yet because they kind of are and they kind of aren't. It looks like the systems are fully well established. The Red Wings as a team consistently look similar. Now, offensively, that's a bad thing. Defensively, that's a good thing. On the special teams, it's a good thing. You can you can see the same things game in, game out now, which we couldn't see in the first couple of weeks. I, th- I think the team has a very good grasp of what Lone systems are to this point. Where there's the adjustment period is, yeah, they, they cannot get a consistent lineup to this point in the season. So chemistry is tough to build and all that. Plainly, I think just the lack of talent on this roster is being realized. Now, there have been improvements to last year to varying degrees, but overall, this is still a team that is a fringy playoff team at best, and it's starting to show. You know, you get the optimism at the beginning of the season, which we all rightfully had, of look at all these new players. This team is going to be a lot better. Now we're coming down to the stark reality of a lot better than last year is still very mediocre. And I think that's where the Red Wings are at now. What else is there to say? <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to do that for this. That's for uh, for the prospect profiles. Yeah, and we haven't started those yet. So, uh, And hopefully uh, we don't have to for a while. <laughs> that's really the benchmark of, of the success of the Detroit Red Wings is when the hell do we start those? Yeah, as long as we're not talking about Connor Bedard by February, I think we're doing all right. <laughs> I, uh, I, <laughs> we might be. <laughs> Um, but I, I think I, I mostly agree with what you guys said. Like, it's starting to become a little bit now or never. And today was the first day I really looked at the Atlantic standings in a while. And it's having a lot of shades of last year right now. There's the haves and the have-nots already. Um, and it's the teams are starting to filter their way. Um so the Red Wings really do got to start to turn this thing around in quick because, like you guys alluded to, December's yeah, it might be Christmas in the Hannah household, but I don't know how many presents they're going to be getting <laughs> from other teams. As you can tell, Evan does not like that we have our decorations up. This year, uh, the other day at the grocery store, I noticed the my first Christmas song on the on the overhead. That's pretty late. They usually start much sooner. Evan leaves the house three times a month. That's so. right. Yeah. yeah. They, so they're all for the podcast. <laughs> the yeah. rest of the time he's uh, hologrammed in like Tupac. <laughs> yeah. So I think this team's got a lot more in it. They need, A, they need some health. They need guys to be back in the lineup in regular roles, playing with regular line mates, get some consistency and some chemistry established. That will go a long way to determining where this team is uh, not only amongst the te- other teams in their division, but the the Red Wings teams over the past couple seasons. All right. Well, we're, we'll see how this progresses. Uh, whether you're in the camp of they need to turn it around now, or you expect them to, or you expect them to turn it around now, or you're not really too concerned because this is the team feeling it out. The Red Wings are going to have a lot of opportunity for the rest of November before it gets tough. So. We'll see how uh, how they fall into shape, and I'm sure we'll be we'll be talking about it from time to time. I'm sure we will. Before we get into the rest of the episode, I want to tell everyone that this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast is proudly sponsored by NordVPN. Are you missing out on a game or your favorite show because it's not available in your region? Let me introduce NordVPN. Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can watch and browse as if you're elsewhere in the world, making sure you never miss a game and can watch whatever content you'd like. 
No need to travel across a continent or oceans for your favorite team when NordVPN brings them right to you. With over 5,000 server options, no game or show is out of your reach. Using our special link, nordvpn.com slash wingedwheel, you can receive a huge discount on NordVPN's cybersecurity two-year plan, plus four free months. We all love to binge, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund, and you can pretend the entire thing never happened. Again, check out our special link, nordvpn.com slash wingedwheel, to get your subscription started today. Some news from overseas. Dmitry Bichelnikov uh, extends with SKA in uh, Russia until 2025. So that is two more seasons after this current one. Now, <laughs> relationships between Russia and North America, both on the hockey and on the geopolitical level, are icy right now. So you can't really speculate as to out clauses, and I think it'd be maybe foolish unless something someone knows uh, otherwise to expect him over before that. Uh, but that is a talented player, a skilled player that the Red Wings use a high, you know, a lot of draft capital to pick, uh, who is now guaranteed to not, more or less guaranteed to not be here unless something changes for the rest of this season, of course, and then the next two. What does that mean in terms of Bichelnikov's development and timeline for this team? Timeline, I don't think it changes anything. He was a project when he was picked, so, you know, and he was an undersized player, so there was a long road for him to get to the NHL. Would we have liked to have seen a year or two in Grand Rapids in the North American game instead of all in Russia? Yeah, that would have been ideal. But there have been many Russian prospects who come up through the Russian junior system, play a couple years in the KHL, and then hop over to North America and do fine. I mean, not all to the level of Kirill Kaprizov, but it's been done. And... You know, in terms of quality of competition, Buchelnikov is going to be getting all the exposure he would have gotten in the AHL. So it'll just be adapting to style of play when he comes over that might delay it by a year if they want to get him a year in Grand Rapids before Detroit. But, you know, best way I can summarize, it's not the ideal path for him, but it's also not a significant deal. Not the worst league in the world to play in. But again, that carries so much more weight now, like... There's just so many unknowns. There was always a little bit of sketchiness around playing in Russia in whatever version of the league that they've had. But prior to the war, there was some relative stability to playing there. And you knew that they were playing some quality hockey. Do I think it was the best in Europe? Probably not, at least sometimes. Uh, but now with the very obvious geopolitical implications of what the hell is happening at any given moment right now, three hours from now, three months from now, or a year from now, it it does instill a little bit of uneasiness, and you have to imagine the organization feels the same, that they can't get him over sooner. It also can't be a surprise, though. They have a scout embedded there. They understand how these things work, and this was part of the risk for anyone drafting a Russian player. So it goes back to our conversations pre-draft of how many Russians are going to be taken, how far down the board are they going to be, uh, are they going to be taken, like, you're, you know, when's Danila, you're off. When, when was he going to go? That was something that we were wondering about. Marashnichenko, although for different reasons as well. And he's been doing pretty well, which, is, which has been nice to see. Um, 
So, I mean, that's part of the game, and you hope that it's an uneventful two years and that he does make his way over, but for now, it's uh, it's about watching his highlights and his game from afar, so hopefully there's, uh, there's more airtime and it's without geopolitical context, to put it lightly. Speaking of geopolitical context, because I'm not done with the politics on this episode, the NHL delayed their plans for the World Cup of Hockey to take place in 2024, and they pushed it a year, and very upfront, this is about Russia. They want a best-on-best tournament. They want their version of the Olympics, the NHL, sanctioned, organized, whatever, version of a best-on-best tournament, and they felt that they needed Russia there to truly do it. So they gave them another year to basically see what's going to happen with the war in Ukraine. I don't know. I don't know about this one. Like the pessimist in me is like, well, if you look at how we got to where we are now, I don't know why you would have any confidence that another year is going to make that big of a difference. Um, I understand it though. It's hard to sell your version of the Olympics, which is already started on the back foot. I'm not a believer in it personally, Uh, your version of the Olympics and then say, an entire country of some of the best players in the world can't play, then it's not a best on best in true format. It's complicated and messy. I don't know about this one. I had very little faith in the NHL from the get go to get this right before all the geopolitical confusion uh, added to the event. I, I just don't know what to make of it. Cause what my gut tells me is, You know, this is the NHL telling Russia, hey, we'll give you another year. You know, it's all right. We'll take some time. We'll uh, we'll accommodate you, which just feels wrong. I don't think that's what it is. I I, I know that's not what it is, but that's what it feels like. It's I almost wish they just lied to us. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we had complications, logistical problems, whatever. Oh, no. People would have seen through that right away. I know. But at least then there's plausible deniability. But um. I, I don't know. I just, I don't like this. I get without Russia, it can't be a true best on best. And I understand that. And I understand how rarely hockey's been able to do a best on best because, you know, it's not like there's an event already set up for them to do it. Um, that event just, already excludes Russia, so it would have worked perfectly. No, no, they're there. They're just different name they're athletes they're not actually olympic athlete athletes from russia i don't think they can get away with that anymore i think that with the doping scandals they they the olympics and countries could get away with that and now with how heavy and firm the state the sanctions are (laughs) no i know and i don't know enough about geopolitics or you know putin's mindset i don't have a guess do do i think delaying this to 2025 is going to make an appreciable difference in any way no no so do you scrap the World Cup of Hockey entirely? You can't. The players want what it happens so if bad. They're in the then same why delay spot it? Yeah, exactly. Likely in the same spot with a even with this year delay. But yeah, the the players really want this. Like they've they were firm on the Olympics before, and I still think the Olympics are the gold standard of best on best hockey. I, I yes, we have had summit series in the past; those have come and go even participation in the Olympics come and go, but that really is a structure where you can plug in, have a best on best tournament. And it is a wonderful like exercise in saying which country has the best hockey players right now. The players have even moved off of that because they understand how long it is between Olympics and they are, they want anything. So 
I think it's a lose lose for the NHL. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that they're doing anything other than just buying time because as it is right now, it's untenable. And they said they're probably saying, "Well, if I have to run it in a year without the Russian players, anyways, I'd I'd rather take that gambit in case in those twelve months anything changes where it becomes viable to let Artemi Panarin play in this tournament when he's very much anti-war." The World Cup right now is already such like a feeble concept that if they try to run it without. Russia, it's it's similar to uh, the world championships that happen as the NHL playoffs are happening, which have like the best players in the world in them. I don't really think it's the same at all because at that scenario, you've got two things happening in parallel where the talent is diluted across both. Whereas if you do a World Cup of Hockey, that's essentially it at that moment in time. Like Those are the best players playing with one another in a single tournament. Ideally. It's hard to do when you're missing a, like a, a super nation of hockey players, though. I really don't see the problem in that. You have, maybe because I'm like very much like I would be okay stripping Russia from all sporting events, and like I feel very heavy-handedly about that. Yeah, well, and I know that is unfair for guys like Artemi Panarin, but I feel like sometimes you just have to come down that way. I think the NHL is prepared to do what you just said, like move on without them. Well, they, will they do that in one year? I, or will it be another delay? No, because if they delay again, then that's into the Olympics. And that's players are going to say, well, screw your world. Screw this new thing. Like the Olympics are right there. And not like the International Olympic Committee is without fault here. One oh, of the most corrupt no, organizations no. on the planet. But I think the NHL, you know, maybe morally comes down where you are. But the people who run the books are like, hey, if you want this thing to be consistent, you want it to run every four years on offset with the Olympics, and you want it to be a true best-on-best tournament, you you need Russia there otherwise. I think they should just do it because you just put something out there. People will huff and puff, but at the end of the day, no one's going to be t- saying anything when Crosby and McDavid are playing on the same line together. Everyone's going to get over the fact that Russia is not there um, as soon as that happens. Yeah, the the correct way to go about this from a business standpoint and from a moral standpoint was to just run the tournament in 2024 without Russia. And that, then maybe by 26 when the Olympics are happening again. You let the IOC make the call because if the I... <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> but... but but then from the, the you end, wash your hands of it, yeah. right? Like if the IOC lets Russia back in for that 2026 tournament, it doesn't look awful when the NHL does in 2028. Mm-hmm. They're like, they already did it. They're back. They've been playing world championships. We would have gotten used to seeing Russia in events again. And it wasn't the NHL who was the one that quote unquote let them back in. They would then have the, well, we're just going with what the norm is. Nobody, like, let's be honest, nobody would question it. If Russia had been playing two years of international events and then the World Cup of Hockey 2028 comes around and Russia's in it, is anybody even remotely phased? No, of course not. But now we're sitting here with a major tournament delayed by a year to try to accommodate Russia. Let's call a spade a spade. It, it's such a bad look. It's such a waste because now, again, they're going to be a year out, probably less than a year out from the Olympics. It just it just seems 
ethically backwards and from a profit standpoint wrong. Because if they go full go in 2024, A, they get the revenue sooner. B, like you said, advertisers won't care because there's no Russia. The tournament would run smoothly minus one team. Everybody is still going to view this mostly as best on best. I understand it's not full best on best, but you get all the best of Finland, Sweden, Canada, US, Czechia. So every team that's playing each other, it's the best of that country playing the best of that country minus one team. The the solution here seemed very simple to me, but of course, it's the NHL. They can't make anything simple. Well, it's a contentious topic. And it's a really complicated one. So why don't we get to something easier to talk about? Uh, offside reviews. <laughs> Speaking of the NHL not being able to get simple things right. Trevor Zegras scored another Michigan. And uh, fantastic goal. Beautiful. I understand. I understand where the, um, I hope mostly in jest, like anti-Zegras sentiment comes from from Red Wings fans. I personally love watching the guy play. Oh yeah, the the Calder race is over. There's I have not seen any animosity towards Zegers from Red Wings fans this year. Uh, he he lost rightfully so, and and now we can just enjoy his play. He's been electric, and what a phenomenal goal! And you know the roof's blown off the place. Everyone is losing their minds all over the internet. Uh, great moment for hockey, and then <laughs> challenge for offside. And how many seconds before was it? Thirty something around. I there? don't even care. It was a very clear offside that was missed uh, when the Ducks gained the zone. Uh, very clear by like a couple of ass hairs. Like, <laughs> thank you for that. And uh, yeah, the goal was called back by the rules. It was called back, and it was a such a, a a substantial amount of time between where the question was raised yet again. We just lost a fantastic goal off the board, a goal off the board, let alone a, a highlight real goal because of something that happened half a minute ago where so many different plays happened in the offensive zone where the defense had an opportunity to clear it, blah, blah, blah. But it got called back because the puck never cleared the zone and it entered, you know, illegally offside. Evan, do you want to start this one? I don't even know where to begin. You take, you have the most distance from Brad between the two of us. So you have a little bit more leeway, but if you start the wrong way, he will stab you. (laughs) I mean, you know my stance. I hate watching baseball because it takes 17 hours, and I hate watching football because it's so slow, and it's basically commercials with a little bit of football sprinkled in. So the the less time we can spend with dead air on a hockey broadcast, I'm all for it. I think there needs to be I – don't, I don't think they'll get rid of the rule, which for me that would be fine with. Um, but Matt Duchesne has other ideas. Um, but they need to put in something, and it cannot be a, like a shot clock, like, oh, the it, it happened 40 seconds ago, because then now you're just getting too complicated. And the NHL has clearly demonstrated complication does not work for their, uh, their ability to get things right. So I think maybe you do something where if the opposing team gains possession again, kind of like they have with delayed penalties, then that nullifies the offside um, or something. Just just get rid of it because this is going to happen again. I actually don't mind that one. Like if you had clear control of the puck, then the offside review is null and void. Oh, I'm sure we all can define clearly what clear control of the puck is. 
Okay. Well, if, they, if it's blow, if they're going to blow it down for a delayed penalty, I think that's probably a starting point. Brad, I know what you're going to say, and I don't, I don't think, think you, I don't think you do. And I, oh boy, that's <laughs> never a good sign. <laughs> when Brad's not predictable, things go south fast. I think everything you said, Evan, is a really great point, and though it hurts me in my heart, I think everything you're about to say, Brad, or that I thought you were about to say, is correct. This is bad for the game. I'm a I'm a rule book purist. The shitty part of me is like, eh, if it's offside, it's offside. But I don't think the 30 seconds between that and the goal, like I think in the spirit of the game and how the goal came about, I don't think it mattered. What I want to see is for the NHL to dedicate their use of technology rather than freaking digital board ads that move and can make me smell colors some kind of technology embedded in the boards and overhead from the blue lines, which I know is a big ask across 32 arenas, but something in there that makes it easier where the refs get a buzz on a watch on their wrist or whatever it might be to say, Hey, there's a play currently in the zone, blow it dead. It was offside. Soccer slash football. They do that. And VAR has been, the rollout has been shaky in some leagues and better in others. But I think that's the direction you have to go in. Because we are going to argue, and people are going to argue till they're blue in the face. Brad raised a good point. What then is clear possession? How much time is the right amount of time before it doesn't matter anymore? Oh, 15 seconds? Was it 14.9 or 15 when the clock ticked? How is it when the puck crossed the blue line? As there's, It is an a, a approaching zero but never hitting zero exercise in where do you draw this line. And I think you have to go back to the source to remedy it, which is, Make it so the reviews don't take forever and make it so one of the most subjective calls at game speed in hockey has an assist. There's no shame in that for linesmen and referees. There's none at all. I have been a linesman and a referee. It is insanely hard to do. And I was uh, for tyke players, let alone NHL players, right? So help them out. Find a way. These are smarter people than me. Chips in the puck and, you know, embedded sensors in the ice. I don't know. There's a million different solutions that I'm sure I, I... a, a lot put a more. man on the moon for God's sake yeah. so you can figure this out. Figure it out so that Brad can sleep at night and lower his blood pressure because he is not going to live a day over. How old are you? 62 now? About that. Yeah. Anyhow, that is my stance on it. Brad, you have waited patiently. Thank you. Just whatever you do when you gesticulate, make sure not to hit me in the face. I'm going to take my emotion out of this. My God, what? (laughs) (laughs) A world first. Because everybody knows how irritated I am and how mad and how stupid this all is. So if I argue from that standpoint, it's going to be insanely biased. So let's get to the basics of this. What is the purpose in the NHL? I don't even know anymore. (laughs) Good vibes. No, and that is actually a frighteningly true statement. The answer is it's an entertainment. It's an entertainment product. That is what the NHL is. Is there a single person on the planet who's entertained by an offside review? <laughs> For all, uh, some sickos in their parents' basements. Yeah. Even the the rulebook purists are at the point of this is getting ridiculous. Because in the last few weeks, we have had a highlight real Michigan goal taken off the board, which I should side note, in a league that is desperate to find more offense. Yeah, the last couple of years have been going well. They've been going up, but there's, we're still finding ways to take away offense that has already happened. That's right. A few weeks ago, Phil Kessel, in his record-tying game, scored his 400th goal against his former team. Like, what kind of moment is that? That is 
fairy tale type of stuff, the exact type of storyline and entertainment a fan would love to see on TV or in person live. They called it back because of an offside review and, you know, stood around for seven minutes to, to review it, deflating all the energy out of the building and what might've been probably went down as maybe one of the most happy, exciting moments of the season. So I don't think this argument comes down to how do we fix offside reviews? Because the true answer here is every variation of an offside review is going against the purpose of the NHL. This is an entertainment product. If some, if there are two calls a year that are wrong, it's still better for the league to not have these reviews seemingly every night. Is there a night in the NHL where there isn't one of these monotonous reviews? Hold on. It wouldn't be two calls a year. It'd be 200. You know that, right? I'm going to let me preface this by saying offside that we noticed. If we don't go back with like the micro frames of half an inch, which will happen though. No, I know. I am fully aware that, you know, the networks are stupid enough if they did get rid of offside reviews to go look, oh, this one in the old system would have been called back. Dude, I'm stupid enough. If and when the Red Wings are in the playoff and there's no option to challenge offsides, I am going to look back at every single yep. goal that the Boston Bruins score in their game seven, whatever win to see yeah, if any of them were sport. That's like part of the allure of sport. Yeah. I don't think it has to be. Anyways, but anyways, go ahead, Brad. So let's imagine a world where maybe the NHL, you know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, winks, winks. Hey, don't do replays of close offsides after goal. Just don't. So let's pretend we're not seeing those micro frames of a play. Are we better off with nightly offside reviews or one or two obviously bad calls a year? I think it's more than one or two. It, it isn't. It, it, nobody can name one beyond Matt Duchesne. I can think of two. I can think of two where it was bad enough that you could catch it with the naked eye and it resulted in a goal. This is an entertainment product that has put a system in place to dramatically decrease the entertainment because now when we're watching an average play, forget anything, the Red Wings gain the zone, cycle it for 45 seconds, and score. There's still that thought in the back of the head, I hope this stands because I don't remember how they gained the zone. That's a really good point. Any, any play that's a two-on-one where it's close, and they score, you immediately go to, holy, I hope this stands. Not only are the offside reviews themselves hurting the game and pulling Phil Kessel's 400th goal off the board, Zegers' Michigan off the board, the goals that are scored and do count and stand, we can't fully enjoy until we've seen a replay because we just don't know. And... Again, I'm taking my opinion out of this, but the NHL, as an entertainment product, is actively making themselves less entertaining. And to me, in a business that is for profit, feels insanely stupid because this is not going to help new fans stay engaged in the sport. Hell, it doesn't help existing fans stay engaged in the sport. I feel bad for the linesmen and all of this too because they make some absolutely remarkable calls. Yeah, real time decisions. 
based on like a fraction of an inch. They are phenomenally good at their job. For how few egregiously wrong offsides they are, it is truly impressive. And Evan is right. Now we're making their lives more dis- difficult for no good reason. And I don't think anybody really looks at those replays when it's like the smallest of margin. They're like, wow, I can't believe the linesman didn't call that. And that like 10th, eight, one one thousandth of a second. How did they not see that? But it's just, you you might end up seeing linesmen make more offside calls because they're like, well, better that is, be safe than sorry. That is happening now. Every, most close calls get blown dead because the linesman doesn't want to be shown up. That, the, that's, I think that's a very fair human reaction. If I was a linesman, I would do the exact same thing. Yeah. If I'm like 50-50, I'm blowing it every time because I do not want to be wrong on camera for a seven-minute review. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you could get into the ways to fix offside, like, oh, the coaches have 10 seconds to challenge. If they can't pick it out right away and they're wrong, it's a penalty. Or you can put a shot clock in, or you can increase the technology. All of it boils down to it's making the product worse. That's that's where I disagree. It's where it, I agree that there's a problem. I agree like that. The moment that really was poignant for me that you talked about is when they score, you're now like, oh, is this going to be challenged for something that no one noticed entering the zone? What if they, sorry, what if they increase the penalty of getting it wrong? Because clearly teams don't feel that there's that much of a risk of challenging it right now. If you get it wrong, your goalie doesn't get a stick the rest of the oh, game. Oh, what I was thinking, if it's not a, it's, <laughs> don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> if it's a, still a two minute power play what if the you know the non-challenging team gets to pick what player goes in the penalty box yeah the goalie <laughs> the coach <laughs> the goalie's stick the, the coach won't give a shit like how much they'd rather they'd rather risk the player being in, like their yeah. best penalty so we just gotta get rid of it well you gotta think though just break down the numbers on the challenge versus the penalty a good team will kill off over 80% of their penalties, whereas there is a definitive goal on the board right now. So you've got a one in five chance to not get scored on. Uh, sorry, a one in five chance to get scored on on the penalty kill or a 100% chance to get scored on if we don't challenge this. There's a problem. The solution might be go backwards, get rid of them. We got rid of the crease rule. But... I think in the world of precision in professional sports, reviews are only becoming more relevant. And I think there's, I go back to what I said, there's not been enough done to make them more efficient. And they're they're not efficient right now because they rely too much on subjective human evaluation and poor tools. Not high enough resolution cameras, not enough angles, not enough sensors. This isn't a technology problem. I think it is. It and, isn't because okay, now, what we're just, happens, now we're going to be able to get the margins of offside even slimmer. Brad, what happens? We went down to the molecular level. Yeah. <laughs> what happens? Okay. The quark spun at this rate. No. What happens when a game seven series winning goal is scored against Detroit and you, me, and Evan all know it was offside and we have to live with it because there's no way Derek Lalonde was allowed to challenge it. And that will happen. The same exact way you knew a, uh, Trevor Zegras' unreal goal would one day be taken off the board for something that didn't matter. But what if the Red Wings score well, then I the think game Brad's seven right. winning goal <laughs> and it's offside but they can't you, challenge it? You cannot make decisions based on one of 32 franchises because there have been. No, it's going to happen to every franchise. Um, 
Well, Buffalo would have to make the playoffs first. You, so hey, Buffalo the, will the, tell you all about the uh, a goal that was scored against them. They should, don't think should have counted. You remember Bob Nystrom's goal against the Flyers to win the Islanders first cup? Yeah, there was an offside shortly before that. That wasn't called. Does anybody talk about that? No. Do we still have one of the greatest moments in hockey history? Yep. Technology's too good today. It's going to be a. F- it's Pandora's box is open. We no, have. I I understand that. If you get rid of it, it will not be handled properly. Because the course of action is if you get rid of it, okay, you don't show the, the you know, Zapruder film replays every time. <laughs> but they will, and I know they will. This is where you are right. You are absolutely right. Because it has existed, and then if it doesn't exist anymore, people understand the concept and the technology and what could have been. Oh, that goal could not have went against us because this guy broke the rule. I know that's going to happen. The NHL has already ruined this forever, one way or the other. Yeah, I'm, ju- I'm just saying just getting rid of it and dealing with that is the lesser of two evils here. Okay, last thing on this. What other world problem do we have to solve today? <laughs> well, I think if we don't uh, cure every illness by the end of the episode, this is just going to be... A big batch of negativity put out in the world. So why don't we we convert to something positive, which is overtime, where we take questions from our Patreon supporters as our way of saying thank you for supporting the show. Patreon.com slash Podcast. If you do want to become a member of the so-called Dub Dub Club, uh, thank you, Steve Dangle, for giving us most of that name uh, and our patrons for, fit, for, uh, for pulling it together. You get access to great things like the Winged Wheel Podcast uh, Discord. Uh, you get entered into every single giveaway that we do, public or Patreon exclusive, automatically. You get to double dip on those entries. Um, we have two tickets to every Red Wings home game this season, and the vast majority of them are going to uh, Patreon supporters. So you can uh, win those and just go see a Red Wings game just by supporting the show. Uh, there's a ton of great benefits. Oh, our Patreon exclusive uh, overtimes that we record right after these recordings. It's a blast, um, and it really helps the show more than we can say so we appreciate it so so much so why don't we take some questions here uh first one from keenan o'donohue says what are the wings uh what do the wings have to do to show that the defensive third period shell does not work and why is it that we have to play perfect in order to not get blown out i get that we need to be detailed but i don't agree with uh with what happens when we're not or that what we see is what should happen when we're not detailed that's the message the coach has said the last couple of times thanks guys go wings when you can't talent your way out of problems, you have to be perfect. And that's where the Red Wings are at currently. And hey, to Lalonde's credit, their defensive systems and PK, really damn good. About as close to perfect as you can get with the level of talent they have deploying it. It's good. It's working. But you can't out-talent your problems. The Red Wings can't. Coyote season tickets and Tempe says the Red Wings have still not upgraded the center... Uh, position on the second line. I think many people, myself included, underestimated Cop's injury, and I wonder if Eisenman had knowledge of it prior to giving him the contract. Cop may uh, may well come around, but right now, all we have are videos of the boy wonder Marco Casper tearing it up in the SHL. The lack of a bona fide 2C also massively increases Larkin's leverage over Eisenman, in my opinion. The Red Wings are not a playoff team right now, and until they have a respectable one-two punch down the middle, they won't be. Man, these Red Wings are going to be the poster children for why you sign short-term contracts versus long-term contracts because it is almost comical. I, I understand there's context that's out of their control, but it is almost comical how badly Kubelik, Perron, and Mata have outplayed Sherratt and Cop. 
Um, speaking of attention to players elsewhere, there's a really good uh, uh, tweet I saw from, I want to make sure I get this right, Zach Rust on Twitter. Um, mentioned that Kosa gets a lot of attention for good reason from Red Wings uh, Nation, but uh, Carter Guylander, seventh round pick by Detroit in 2019. He's six foot five, also a big goalie, and currently playing in uh, for Colgate, so D1 hockey. He has a 923 save percentage and 2.51 goals against average through 12 games. So he's doing well over there. He's doing well, but this is his third collegiate year? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, he, he's been there for a while. He's doing very, very well, but at this point in his collegiate career, he should be doing very well. Massive improvement. Finished last season with a 908 and the one before with a 901 save percentage. Yeah, so. so he's continuing on the gradual yeah. course of improvement. And again, we talked about it with Guy Lander years ago when he was drafted. You, you draft, draft, you draft huge athletic goalies hoping that they get it together. And yeah. if he does, yeah, he's a very viable option. And also drafted out of the AJHL. So a uh, unique uh, career path that um, not everyone's going to be Kale McCarr coming out of there. Uh, okay, next question from Orange Sunkvist says, uh, Larkin has been part of a losing team almost his entire career. This season could be trending the same way. How much do you think years of losing and his perception of the rebuild status affect his decision to stay in Detroit? More than we would like to admit. Uh, Adam Hutchinson, this is a really good question, says it seems like forwards can switch from left wing to right wing and vice versa easily. Why is it more difficult for defensemen? Thank you. I don't think forwards can. I mean, it is difficult for a winger to transition sides unless they're, they've done it before, they're very comfortable with it. But the main reason it's tougher for defense is there's a lot of D to D passing, especially in the D zone on breakouts, regroups, and almost every team sends pressure. Nothing is worse than getting a D to D pass behind your net. That's your off wing because instead of looking up the ice, you're back to all the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And you're about to get run over. Yeah. And if you, you're paying, playing a team that sends a guy in hard, you're going to get trucked. Yeah. And if you're on your strong side, you can make that outlet pass much quicker than you can if you have to pull it from your backhand to your forehead and set your feet because again you can't just if you're sending it up the middle and you catch it on your backhand your body's going to be positioned straight you that's a hard pass to make on an angle so those quick plays you have to make as a d under pressure are way harder to do when you're catching it on your off wing I'm glad to hear that forwards don't have an easy time of it because when he said that, I'm like, oh yeah, I could not stand playing on the left side. Yeah, because even even me now, the team I play for, we run where I'm the guy running crosser, depending the side that's coming up, and it is so much easier to catch that pass on your forehand coming through the middle and continue with your momentum into the ozone because you're just way more comfortable at it, right? You yeah. can You can make your first move the second that puck touches your stick where you can't do that on your backhand. A question here from Bertimzi says, with the current lineup, how do you feel about the two power play lines? I like Perron and Kubi as the shooters on the first one. How would you change it up? Right now, I don't know if that second unit can be saved. <laughs> no. You know, as Bertuzzi shakes off rust and, and gets back into form, I'm sure there's going to be iterations and, you know, maybe Fabry coming back will help change things and, you don't know when, but hopefully a Verona at some point this season. But for now, you're looking at what can you do for your first line to make sure that they're always deadly and then keep them on for a minute, 30, minute, 45. I mean, the 
the Larkin, Peron, Kubelik, Raymond cider setting seems to be working. I, I would put Bertuzzi on the second unit to hope to get something going in that net front area because Rasmussen, Soderblom, Sunkist haven't really been it. So, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. That second unit's hard to fix. All right. Well, that is uh, this episode of the Wing Wheel Podcast. We're going to be back with you on Sunday. Two more games between now and then. And one more late night game on this road trip. So let's hope for a couple good performances uh, and some different storylines for the Red Wings. Uh, until then, we want to thank all of you for tuning in. The uh, sponsors of this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, NordVPN, nordvpn.com slash wheel. If you want to sign up, uh, it really helps the show as well as uh, all of our listeners, new and old, all of our patrons are amazing incredible people in our name level supporters thank you all so much arjun shanker eves bartels on behalf of the sarah grand foundation Akefer, armchair gm slash genius nick perks terry driver of the number 69 crying ryan hen has been in a slam jamathong matthew m rice croner's left knee actual elon musk brad crisco's dirty disco brandon m carl brutana nanaluski jimmy chris ball chris p Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets in Tempe, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hassam al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joseph Barry, Kalen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Las, Ensalad- Las Ensaladas Picantes, Marcus, uh, Matt McKay, Nedelkovich, Goalie Number One, Nicholas Fritz, RA, Ryan Beargrin Hanna. Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, the podcasting coach, Zachary Rogers, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Eves Bartels, Sam Bankson, number one Detroit Red Guys fan, Adam, I wish I could finish like Ernie, Antonio Gracias, Babe Landeskog, Ben Barron, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Connor Leitonen, Darren Fick, uh, Dave W., Philip Zadiz Nuts, Heil, have an order of a large fries and pizza with two eyes and also maybe a win. Ronix Handlebar, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Logan Burgos, Matt Keeler, Matt S., Loyal Soldier of the Cheesebag Army, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, uh, M. Cucci, O. Ophelia, Papa Woody, Pius on the Loose, Thick Rick, uh, and Aaron Hudson. Thank you all so, so very much, and we'll talk to you someday. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.